We have enjoyed so much the uh, music here at Cole Community Church. We just uh, don't hear that kind of music back home. It's uh, just great. And we have enjoyed so much being here and the hospitality and kindness that's been extended to us. Uh, just being in the O'Neill's home and getting to meet their family and getting to know some of you better. It's been a, a good weekend. I've been asked by the elders to uh, tell you a little bit about my background and Carolyn's and uh, some of our thinking about the ministry and then to teach a bit from Scripture. And uh, I'm to do all of that in 30 minutes. So uh, I'll talk and you listen. And if you get through before I do, you can leave. Um, I was I was raised in a Christian home. My uh, dad was for about 40 years pastor of Schofield Memorial Church in Dallas, Texas. Uh, Doctor Schofield of Schofield Bible fame uh, did much of his work on the Schofield Bible when he was pastor of that church. And uh, after he left, they had a succession of pastors. The one before my father being Doctor Chafer, who founded Dallas Seminary. And then back uh, oh, about 1928, my father became the pastor of, of that church. And I was raised in that environment. We had a lot of people through our home, people like J. Sidlow Baxter and uh, Dr. Mitchell, Dr. Jack, whom you all love so much, and, and other, other Bible teachers uh, like those men. And I just I didn't think of them as anything special at all. They were just people who ate in our home. And... Uh, early came to appreciate the scriptures and their place in our lives and the ministry of teaching. Uh, I became a Christian when I was very small. I don't really know when I accepted the Lord. It's difficult for me to pin down a time when I received the Lord, but I know that he came into my life sometime when I was a very small child and I was raised in that environment. I uh, went to uh, Southern Methodist University in Dallas and uh, graduated in 1955, January of 1955 from uh, SMU with a degree in physical education. Uh, I had been an athlete in high school and college and that really was all I was interested in and I wanted to uh, work with young men primarily and disciple them uh, through athletics and thought that's what I would be doing but uh, on Valentine's Day, February the 14th, 1955, I was drafted into the Army and that ended my illustrious coaching career. Uh, I uh, uh, while I was in the service, was in special services, which is uh, sort of the athletic and recreational end of things, and had a lot of fun for two years. Uh, was director of the post swimming pool and did a number of other very dangerous things like that. <laughs> Fought the Battle of the Chow Line, and I think probably the most significant thing that happened to me in the Army is that I met Carolyn. I went back to Dallas to. Uh, me and my best friend's wedding and she was the maid of honor and it was uh, just one of those things that the Lord put together and shortly afterwards she came to California to be at, at a conference and that's where we got better acquainted and and then in 57 uh, August the uh, 24th 1957 yeah. uh, we were married and uh, that was just probably Apart from my decision to receive Christ, the best decision I ever made. Uh, let's see. I, when I came out of the Army, I had planned to go back to SMU and, and uh, finish up a teaching credential there and, 
and do some graduate work and enrolled uh, at SMU and at the same time planned to go to Dallas Seminary in order to pick up some units from Howard Hendricks. I had always been so impressed by Howie and, and uh, so I, uh, I was a special student at Dallas that year while I was going to SMU and after uh, one quarter I dropped out of SMU and enrolled in Dallas Seminary full time and was there until 1961. And then in 19, after 1961, we left and came to, to uh, uh, Peninsula Bible Church. I remember going to uh, Prof. Hendricks and telling him that I really wasn't interested in working in a church, that I wanted to do something uh, church-related, but not in a local church. And he said, go to PBC. That's the unchurchiest church I ever saw. And uh, so we went there and have just uh, tremendously enjoyed our time in that uh, group of, with that group of believers. I was the Christian ed, well I came as the youth man and then I was the Christian ed director and then the minister to university students uh, on the Stanford campus for about five years uh, there during the, the time of campus unrest and uh, those were very uh, exciting and fruitful years for us. And then uh, about five or six years ago the Board of Elders asked me to leave the campus and uh, be Ray's backup man in the pulpit. Uh, Ray Stedman was traveling a great deal of, of the time then. and. So I uh, preached while he was gone and did that for about three years. And then we began a thing we call Scribe School, which was a sort of mini-seminary, a lay seminary attached to the, uh, to the, to the church. I've always felt that uh, the best training could be provided by a local church for their young people, young men and women, and older people. And so we began Scribe School with that, that plan in mind. And uh, I was the director of Scribe School until last August. We left in August because we felt, uh, well, there were a number of reasons. Uh, PBC is over-blessed with good teachers. They have 12 or 13 teaching pastors, and we felt that we needed to move on. And uh, also, we just uh, felt that it was time for us to begin to develop uh, another ministry someplace else. So we left in August, and I went back to school to finish up a program I've been working on for some years at uh, UC Berkeley and I'm working in the area of Near Eastern Studies, Old Testament Biblical Studies, uh, in an attempt to try to understand the Old Testament better. I, I have long felt that the Old Testament is just a closed book to so many Christians, and I'd like to help them understand it. So that's what we've been doing. We have three children. Uh, Randy, who is 17, a senior in high school, who will be going to the University of Oregon next year. And... Uh, Brian, who is 15, he'll be a junior in high school, and Joshua, who is 8. And that's our family. Did I forget anything? This is Carolyn. I don't know if you met her or not. She's right down here. You want to stand up so they can see you? <laughs> that's Carolyn. Uh, I'm probably the strangest pastor you ever met. I... Uh, <laughs> I'm still not very churchy, and I'm not very religious. I'm just... Uh, a man who's bound by the Word of God and subject to it, and it's my intention by the strength of an indwelling Lord to, uh, to respond in obedience to the Scripture. And my great desire is to see people grow up. I'm not much of a program man. I just uh, want to teach the Scriptures and disciple people and help them grow to maturity. And that's uh, been the goal of our life for some time and will continue to be so. Well, that's our story. Uh, I'd like to teach a bit from the Old Testament, and I'd like to have you turn to a passage that, um, for me, in my own understanding of the Christian life, is foundational. Uh, it's, um, a 
it's a well-known passage, but uh, perhaps there will be some, some new understanding for you from this passage, because I'd like to look at it from a little different standpoint. It's the story of the call of Moses in Exodus 4, or 3, excuse me, Exodus 3. Moses was a remarkable man. That almost goes without saying. We have a, on our coffee table at home, we have a, a book on the history of Israel by a Israeli historian. His name is Moshe Greenberg. And uh, it's, it's the story of the history of Israel, which he begins with Moses. For most Israeli historians, the story begins with Moses. He is the founder uh, not only of the nation, but of Jewish religion. And uh, the title of this book is How It All Began. He traces everything back to Moses and uh, lays a great deal of stress on the, on the peculiar impact that Moses had on his time and on his people. And uh, as I've read the book, the thing that struck me is that uh, he really does see Moses as a super, almost superhuman being, capable of... Uh, of doing things that no other man could ever do. Uh, a very charismatic, very gifted, very uh, intelligent, uh, gifted leader. All of the things that we usually, that we normally associate with, uh, with in, those things that are impressive to us. Um, I think he's missed the point because I think Moses was a very ordinary person. He certainly had, he had training that was superior to our training. He certainly was a gifted man, but the impact of this man on his times and succeeding generations uh, is not the result of some natural ability that this man had, because as a matter of fact, his own assessment of his life is that he didn't have very much to offer. And that's why I like to teach on Moses, because I think most of us can identify very readily with Moses. We really don't feel ourselves very competent to do anything. I really think that most people in the world are very insecure. They cover it up in various ways. We all have different ways to, uh, to hide. But essentially, most of us are uneasy most of the time about our abilities. And Moses is one. It's my conviction that God took a very ordinary man and did a, an extraordinary thing with him. It's also my conviction that that's his intention for all of us, to take just uh, garden-variety Christians, just common, ordinary people like you and me, and do something really significant with our lives. I don't think any of us want to waste our lives. I, don't, I sure don't, and I know you don't. We want our lives to have effect, the right kind of effect, and I think we can learn from Moses how we do that. And again, as I said this morning, when the world talks about impact, they almost always miss the point, but the Scripture never does. Now, we'll begin with chapter 3, although the story of Moses does not... Uh, it begins quite a bit uh, before, back in chapter 2. As you know, Moses' life is divided into three periods of 40 years each. He spent 40 years being trained in Egypt. And as best we can tell, he, he received uh, training that would equip him for military leadership. We don't know much about Moses outside the scripture. There are a few extra-biblical uh, references to him in the writings of Josephus and some other writers. But we don't know much other than what we have in scripture. The, the, the strong feeling you get, though, is that he was being groomed for a position of military leadership. Josephus actually describes some of his military campaigns later on in his life, the conquest of Nubia and other things. So that seems to be the case. And all of this was very valuable for Moses because he did have the assignment of leading uh, two and a half million people across the desert, which is a remarkable thing in itself. 
don't know if you've ever thought about the significance of that action. We, we live in an area that has about 200, uh, about two and a half million people, San Francisco Bay Area. That's a lot of folks. And when you think of, of the responsibility of taking all of those people some four or five hundred miles, having to feed them, having to protect them and provide for their needs, that is a, just a stupendous undertaking. Uh, it, it did require someone who had some ability, some administrative ability, and, and Moses did receive that training as he was growing up. But he needed far more than that, than that training, to equip him for the tasks that God had, uh, had in mind for him. As a matter of fact, Moses had to unlearn a lot of things before he could be the kind of leader that God intended him to be, because along with the good things he learned in Egypt, he learned a lot of bad things. We know, for instance, that the Egyptians are no different from the people of our time, that they were very much impressed by manliness and strength and power. A man was a man because he was big and strong and powerful of personality or physical appearance or impressive in appearance. That's what made him a man. And that Moses had to unlearn. And the way he unlearned it was by making a tragic mistake. He saw, as you know, one of his countrymen being beaten by an Egyptian. And he set out to deliver his people. And as you know, he killed the Egyptian, buried him in the sand, must have left his nose sticking out or something, because somebody saw him. And uh, the cat was out of the bag, and, and Moses uh, was, uh, was known to be a murderer. And so he was undone. I, there's a little story that I always love to tell in association with this. It's uh, uh, I, I'm sure it never happened, but the story, as I was told, it concerns a man who came to see his friend who was uh, who'd had a mild heart attack and he was lying in the hospital under an oxygen tent. And uh, this friend who was ministering to him talked to him for a while. He noticed that his friend was having difficulty breathing. And so he, uh, the man gestured for a pencil and a piece of paper beside the oxygen tent, and he scribbled a note on the pad, and he handed it to his friend, and then, then the guy passed out. And he looked at the note, and it said, Please, George, you got your foot on the hose. And I, I think so often that's what happens. We go out to minister to someone and try to do God's work for God, and we end up doing almost irreparable damage, just messing everything up. And that was Moses. He, he, he was genuinely committed to righteousness. He wanted to do what was right. And he ended up setting back God's program 40 years. And we can all identify. We've all done it. He had to learn that God had another way of, of getting things done. And that we begin to see in chapter 3. Now let's begin reading. We're going to have to read quite a bit of, of uh, chapter 3 and chapter 4, but bear with me. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Horeb is just another name for Sinai. The word means desolation, and that's very descriptive of the region where Sinai is, is located. So he's pasturing his flock near Sinai, where later the law was, was given. Uh, as you know, in case you don't know the story, after he killed the Egyptian, he fled across the Arabian desert to the land of Midian, where his, uh, where he later married into the family of a Midianite uh, priest, a man by the name of Jethro, or, or Ruel, as he's called here. He actually had two names. And uh, he was uh, a part of that family for 40 years. He spent 40 years herding sheep in the wilderness. So chapter 3 actually occurs at the end of the second period of Moses' life, 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness, and then chapter 3 begins. 
Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. This apparently is one of these uh, scrubby-looking bushes that grow in the desert, creosote bushes that dot the the wilderness. And Moses, as he's he's looking for, for pasture for his flock, sees one of these um, one of these bushes aflame and that apparently was a very common phenomenon they would be uh, set on fire by lightning but the strange thing about this bush is that it was not being consumed it wasn't burning so he stops to see the sight and when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look God called to him from the midst of the bush and said Moses Moses and he said here I am then he said do not come here remove your sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground it's customary in the east to take off your shoes when you enter a, a holy uh, site, sanctuary. And what, what Moses comes to understand through this incident is that though this was a common, ordinary bush, this was the place where God was going to encounter Moses. He was going to speak to him. So this for him was a, was a special place, a holy site. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their suffering. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and bring them up from the land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite, and the Amorite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. And now, behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, there are several things I want you to note in this passage. In the first place, these people were not Moses' people. We're told in chapter 3, or chapter 2, that Moses saw one of his countrymen, one of his brethren being beaten, and he acted to, uh, to protect his brother and set God's program back. What Moses need to see, needed to see is that these were God's people. God knew. God understood. Their, their cries had come up to God. He knew that they, were, that they were struggling. And God was going to do something to deliver them. But the important thing to note is that God was going to deliver them through one man, through Moses. Now you have to understand... What, uh, what a monumental assignment that was. As I said before, he had two and a half million people. He was to lead them from Egypt to Canaan. We also know that at this time, Canaan was in the, hand of the hands of the Egyptians. This was all ruled and all of the little city-states in Canaan were controlled by the Egyptians. So that he really was leading his people from the... He was taking them from the uh, frying pan into the fire. Egyptians were everywhere. The Egyptians controlled the Near East from the Euphrates all the way to North Africa. They had it all. It was all their territory. And so what God was saying is that he was going to take them from one place of oppression under the Egyptians to another place that the Egyptians controlled. We also know who the Pharaoh Pharaoh was at this time, and we know where where his palace was and the, the power that that man exerted. Now, it would be somewhat like, as I said, taking the population of San Francisco uh, County and the Bay Area 
taking them through the Mojave Desert. I, I don't know enough about your geography up here to translate it, but you can do that on your own. Taking them through the desert all the way down to Los Angeles. And when you got to Los Angeles, the entire population of Los Angeles was standing at the city line ready to throw everybody out. That's something of the nature of the task that Moses faced. Now, if God had asked Moses to do that 40 years before, do you know what Moses would have said? He would have said, I'm your man. I've got the training for it. I'm equipped for it. I'm your man. But this 40 years of herding sheep had done something to Moses. Moses uh, came from Egypt where they were cattlemen, and he'd been herding sheep for 40 years. And uh, that had, for him had been a very degrading experience. Moses had absolutely no confidence whatever in himself, and that's precisely the place to which God had to bring him, the place of no confidence. And note how he responds in verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? You see, Moses really does not believe that he's the man for the job. I can't do it. Who am I? Send somebody else. I'm not the one. He's learned his lesson very well. He has what we would call today an identity crisis or an identity problem. He just didn't know who he was. Now, the way that sort of thing is handled today, at least if you look at uh, secular books on counseling, they'll tell you that when someone comes to you with an identity problem, they're not sure who they are, what you ought to do is assure them that they're somebody. You make a list of their assets and their attributes and their abilities, and you total them up, and uh, then you decide what they can do. And that's very often what we do when we're confronted with a, an assignment that looks impossible. We look at ourselves and we... We itemize our gifts and our abilities and we come to the conclusion that we just can't do it. You see, Moses, uh, the Lord does not do this for Moses. He doesn't tell Moses what he can do. What he says in verse 12 is that he would be with him. And he said, Certainly I will be with you, and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who has sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. In other words, all he says is that you have me. That's all you need. I'm with you. Moses, I don't care who you are. I don't care what your abilities are. I don't care what gifts you have or what training you have or what kind of personality you have, how much education you have, how articulate you are. That's not the issue. I'm with you. That's always God's answer to us in times when we feel inadequate. You don't need to know who you are. I'm with you. Furthermore, he says, uh, the way you're going to know that I'm with you is that when you come back to this mountain here, you'll know. In other words, you won't know until you get back here to Sinai. The knowing comes after the fact. You simply have to act on the basis of my word that I'm with you. The confirmation will be when you come back here. And that's always God's appeal to us. Everything is on the basis of his word. He says, I am your strength. I am your resources. I am your ability. I am your patience. I am your love. I am what you need. How do I know? Well, I know because he told me so. That's what we heard a moment ago. So we just take him at his word. And the confirmation comes later. He proves himself to be, uh, to be truthful. But we don't know it when we initially uh, step out in faith. 
So that's Moses' first problem. He has an identity problem. He just doesn't know who he is. God tells him that uh, the answer to his problem is that he will be with him. And then Moses has another problem in verse 13. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I, I shall say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? You can see how the argument is progressing. God says, I'm going to send you. Moses says, Who am I? God says, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who you are. I'm with you. And Moses said, Well, then who are you? <laughs> it's nice that you're going along, but uh, let's find out who you are. And so God tells him who he is in verse 14. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. That was the explanation for the name of God. God was known among the Israelites from the time of Abraham on and even before as far as we know as Jehovah or Yahweh. But uh, they had lost the meaning, the significance of that name. And so what the Lord is doing here is explaining to Moses who he was and what, what was the significance of that name. What the name Jehovah or Yahweh means is I am or he is. In other words, he is whatever you need. What do you need to face the, uh, the set of circumstances that you're facing in your home or in your school right now? You need patience? I am patience, he says. Do you need love? He is love. Do you need forgiveness? He is forgiveness. If you're burdened down with guilt. Do you need uh, sensitivity to people's needs around you? Then that's what he is. You see, whatever, whatever the demand is upon us is ultimately a demand upon him. And therefore, Moses could go back into Egypt saying, uh, Lord, whatever I need, that's what you are. Do I need courage to stand before Pharaoh down at Karnak where they had this enormous uh, complex of buildings, huge palace? Stand before him and, and demand that he, he release my people? Do you need courage for that? I sure do. And the Lord says, that's what I am. I'm courage for that situation. Do you need courage to proclaim the gospel to your friends? And that's what the Lord is to you. You see, that's what Moses needed to learn. And that's what we need to learn. It doesn't depend upon us. Every demand upon us ultimately is a, depend, a demand upon our Lord Jesus. And this is what Moses was to go back to his people and, and declare. Well, Moses still has another problem in chapter 4, verse 1. Then Moses answered and said, What if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say the Lord has not appeared to you. He hadn't for over 400 years. All the time they were sojourning in Egypt, the Lord had not not made an appearance. And Moses didn't believe that they would, they would believe him. In other words, his problem here is one of authority. I'm going to go back and I'm going to tell them that God appeared to me and, they, and they're not going to believe me. Did you, have you ever felt that way? That no one's going to listen to you? What, what can I say to anybody that would have any effect on them, whatever? I have no authority. I have no basis for saying what I have to say. Who will listen to me? Who will follow me? That's Moses' problem. And note what the Lord does. He gives him three signs, which will not take time to, to look at in detail, but the, but the first is the sign of the staff. The Lord said, said unto him, What is that in your hand? And he said, A staff. 
And as you know, he throws it to the ground and it becomes a serpent. And God says, pick it up. And I'm sure Moses very gingerly picked it up by the tail and it, it became a staff again. Now the point of that sign is that, uh, is that Moses, by the power of God, would be able to do something that could not be explained on any other basis than that of the activity of God in his life. I don't care how much training you might receive at the University of uh, Memphis or Karnak or any of these other great Egyptian universities, they had no courses in, in changing snakes into staffs and vice versa. They don't offer any courses on that subject. In other words, Moses would be able to do something that could not be explained in terms of his, his background or his education or his training or his intelligence. There would be a supernatural quality about his life. He could do something that even the Egyptians couldn't do. There is, in, in Egyptian literature, a very interesting story about uh, a wizard who made a, a serpent out of wood, threw it into the Nile River, and it became a serpent, and he picked it up by the tail, and it became a, a, a staff again. It's actually in their literature. And, but it's just in their literature. They couldn't do it. The, uh, the magicians in Pharaoh's court could duplicate to a point the, these signs. Uh, perhaps through the activity of demons, but they couldn't uh, duplicate them all. Moses would be able to do things that no one else could do. The second sign is that of leprosy. He's to put his hand into his bosom, and when he takes it out, his hand is leprous, and he puts his hand into his bosom again, and his hand is restored. And again, leprosy was, uh, was widespread in Egypt, in that day, and there were no cures, so Moses would be able to effect a cure that no physician of that day could, could effect. And then finally he was to take the Nile and pour it on the ground and it would become blood. And for the Egyptians, the Nile was, was God. That was their life source. Without the Nile, they died as a nation. And he would have power over the, the, gods of, of the, the god of the Nile and the other gods of Egypt. In other words, again, he would be able to do something that could not be explained merely by his education or his personality or his background. And that's what God is saying to Moses and that's what he says to us. That your impact on others has nothing to do with how much training you have or how glib you are or how much you know. If you're walking by faith and drawing upon the resources of Jesus Christ, there will be about you a quality in your life that cannot be explained on any other basis other than God at work in you. And that's your authority. That's what gives you impact in people's lives. That's why you can stumble through some presentation of the gospel and God will still use it to grip someone's heart because it does not depend upon your articulation of it. And we just need to get out of our mind the fact that we are disqualified if we don't have X number of years of training and haven't done this and that or the other and that's what equips us to be powerful in God's sight. That simply is not true. What gives us authority is obedience to God and faith in Him, reliance upon Him, it's his power in us that enables us to do things that are unexplainable on any other basis other than divine activity. Moses still has another problem in verse 10. Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since thou hast spoken to thy servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. In other words, Moses says, I'm just not very uh, good at speaking not a public speaker. It's really not true. Stephen says that he was a man mighty in word. I think by this time Moses had been so uh, 
he had lost every bit of self-confidence he ever had, and he really didn't think he could do anything right. Though he probably was, on the basis of Stephen's words, a very gifted orator, but he didn't know that. didn't feel that he was. And he says, I just can't do it, Lord. I'm not very good at speaking. Never was a good public speaker. Scares me to death and get up in front of people. One knee says to the other, let's shake every time I get up. And you notice that the Lord does not say to him, Now, Moses, you know that you went to elocution school. You know you've been in public speaking classes. You got an A in public speaking 102. You know you can do the job. You notice what he says? The Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him dumb or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now then go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. In other words, your lack of ability to speak, Moses, in no way can inhibit you because I'm going to speak through you. I'll be your mouth. Do you realize that your weakness is your strength? Conversely, your strength is your weakness. The areas where you feel strong and competent are the areas that God cannot get into. You're on your own there. But in the areas where you feel weak, those are the areas where you're strong. That's exactly what Paul says. He said he would rather glory in his infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon him. In that particular case, he, Paul apparently had some uh, disorder. We don't know exactly what it was. Perhaps an eye disease that that rendered him very unattractive. In fact, he describes himself as repulsive in appearance. And I'm sure he must have thought, if I was just a little more handsome, people would listen to me. And so we're told he besought the Lord three times to take that uh, thorn in the flesh, as he describes it, away from him. And the Lord said, no, no, that's no problem to me, Paul. That doesn't frustrate me. It doesn't inhibit me. Because my power is made perfect in your weakness. And so Paul said, all right, I'll be content with weakness. And that's what we need to learn. Our weakness, you see, we've, we've got things all turned around. We think that what makes us impressive is that we look impressive and we speak impressively. We're powerful people. God says, not at all. He's chosen to use the weak and the very unlikely, the people that you would least choose. Those are the people that, that God uses. Because it's where we're weak that we're dependent and it's where we're dependent that we're strong because that's where God can manifest himself. Verse 13, Moses has one final problem. He says, Please, Lord, now send the message by whomever thou wilt. That sounds very pious, but uh, really it's an idiom for send somebody else. Then the anger of the Lord burned against Moses, and he said, Is there not your father, your brother Aaron the Levite? I know that he speaks fluently, and moreover, behold, he is coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. And you are to speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I, even I, will be with your mouth and his mouth, and I will teach you what you are to do. Moreover, he shall speak for you to the people, and it shall come about that he shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be as God to him. And you shall take in your hand the staff with which you shall perform the signs. Now it's interesting to note that uh, when he had a when Moses had a problem with uh, his own identity, he didn't make God mad. That doesn't bother God. He's not concerned that you feel inferior and weak. When Moses had a problem of ignorance, he didn't know who God was. That didn't frustrate God. God didn't get angry. 
When Moses felt that he wasn't very authoritative and therefore couldn't be a good leader, that didn't make God mad. When Moses disclaimed any uh, speaking ability, that, that didn't anger God. Why does God get angry now? Because Moses had done the one thing that ties God's hand. He said, I'm not available. Send somebody else. And you see, that's all God wants. He wants a heart that's available. Someone who will say, Lord, I'll go anywhere. I'll do anything. I'll be whatever you want me to be. Uh, I saw a sign on the side of a truck once driving through Palo Alto. Any load, any distance, any place, any time. And I thought that's a good statement of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I'll go anywhere. I'll do anything, any place, any time. I just want to be available to you. But you see, when Moses said, I'm not available, that tied God's hands. And that's why God got angry. Now we know from the rest of the story that God never lets us alone. He didn't let Moses miss this opportunity. Moses did end up being his instrument. And as the story goes on to tell us, it came about through a very painful experience. But he finally submitted himself to the Lord, and he was the man who established uh, God's people. And uh, at least he brought them out of Egypt and, and his successor established them in the land. You see, that's all we need is to be available. It's all God wants. Uh, I don't know if you've ever thought about the significance of the bush. Ian Thomas makes the point in his uh, little book that uh, the reason the bush was there and God in appeared in it is that he wanted us to know that any old bush will do as long as God's in it. And I think he's right. There's nothing very spectacular about any of us. We're really just very ordinary people. But God wants to do some very extraordinary things with us. All we need to do is make ourselves available to him. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we're, we're very thankful that you've called, uh, you've called us into a relationship with you and that that call is not based on some inherent quality that we have we just uh, come as we are because you love us and because you've said that you desire us and that it's your intention to, to put us to your intended use and that's our desire as well we want to make ourselves available to you for whatever purpose you choose and uh, we want to see you work through us to accomplish the task of bringing salvation to the world we uh, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.